You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Isaiah 62, verses 2 through 5. The word of the Lord from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, speaking to the people of God. He says, You will be called by a new name. Everybody say a new name. Which the Lord's own mouth will determine. You will be a splendid garland in the Lord's hand, a royal turban in the palm of God's hand. You will no longer be called abandoned, and your land will no longer be called deserted. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, because the Lord delights in you. Your land will be cared for once again, with the joy of bridegroom because of his bride, so your God will rejoice because of you. Now, the context of this statement is that Israel has returned from exile in Babylon. They've lived under heavy taxation. Jerusalem's walls are in ruins. Hunger and poverty is rampant. Their return back to their homeland was not what they had expected. They couldn't help but wonder if the promises of God has failed because they find themselves still oppressed, poor, and hopeless, even though they have returned home. They carry a legacy of ruin and rejection, a legacy of harms and hurts as a deserted people in a land now desolate. And they needed to remember the God who not only has the power to change their circumstances, but has the power to change their name that has the power to change how they see themselves. They needed to remember the God who speaks to them, the words of Isaiah who said, you will be called by a new name, which the Lord's own mouth will determine. See, beloved, there is a word for them, and it is the same word for us. When you have been called ruined or rejected, when you have been called by the hurts or harms you carry, when you have been called unloved or unworthy, hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah from the God who changes your name. Now, this is a text that a leader of the Pharisees would know. This is a text that all Pharisees would know. These are religious political powers in Jesus' name. These are, this is a text that Jesus would know. It speaks to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has the power and desire to make all things new, to make all people new, who longs to welcome all and include all who would come, especially those who were given Names like ruined and rejected, abandoned and desolate, unworthy and unloved. You would think that if the leader of the Pharisees would know this text, you would think that if the Pharisees themselves would know this text, that the text we're actually going to read would be different, but it is not. Luke 14 still reads the same way. And so here's the story in Luke 14. We touched on it last week. We Dive into it this week. Luke 14, verses 1 through 6. First, one Sabbath when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. They were watching him closely. A man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was there. 
Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? See, word on the street is that it didn't. Verse 4, but they said nothing. Jesus took hold of the sick man, cured him, and then let him go. He said to them, suppose your child or ox fell into a ditch on the Sabbath day, would you immediately pull it out? But they had no response. Let's pause for a minute. In Luke chapter 11, Luke tells us that the Pharisees already had it out for Jesus. They're seeking to trap him. So Jesus knows that their intentions aren't good, but Jesus does not run from them. Jesus does not avoid them. Instead, Jesus engages them on their own terms, in their own space, on their own ground, and challenges their own interpretations of the Scriptures. And Jesus does this because he recognizes this room. This room is filled with people of power, privilege, and position. And he has something to say to people who hold power, privilege, and position. And so he goes on in verse 7. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person. Embarrassed, you'll take your seat in the last in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he'll say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite, everybody read this with me, the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, when you give a Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. Now, last week we kind of moved through the text. I don't want to move through it too, too fast today. I want, to, I want to take a look at this and see that Jesus is the invited guest. Yet Jesus boldly engages this situation with a word for the host and the hosted. I think that's a little rude. But Jesus doesn't seem to care. It's what my grandmother would call uncouth. But Jesus doesn't seem to care. Jesus has a word. Too much is at stake in the moment. And remember, church, this is a context of power, privilege, and position. These are people with enough social standing to receive an invitation to a party hosted by a leader among, a leader among the Pharisees. The room's been filled with power, privilege, and position in society. And Jesus has a word for these people who hold power, who benefit from privilege and enjoy the position that they have in society. So Jesus pushes back here in a moment in time when society's religious, economic, political, and social status has lifted up a few at the expense of others and done it in the name of religion. That's the text. That's the context. And so Jesus goes on. And this has always been one of my favorite parts of the text in verse 15 when it says, when one of the dinner guests heard Jesus' remarks, he said to Jesus, happy are those who will feast in God's kingdom. That's like the brother in there that's like, amen, tell them. 
Way to tell them, Jesus. And then it says Jesus replied, which makes it sound like Jesus is replying to what that man said. Jesus replied, verse 16, A certain man hosted a large dinner or a banquet and invited many people. And it was time for the dinner to begin. And he sent his servant to tell the invited guests, Come, the dinner's now ready. One by one, they all began to make, what's the word? Excuses. The first one told him, I bought a farm and must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I bought five teams of oxen and I'm going to check on them. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. When he returned, the servant reported these excuses to his master. The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the city streets, the busy ones, and the side streets, and bring, everybody with me, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. Same description in the same order that Jesus just mentioned. The servant said, Master, your instructions have been followed and there is still room. Everybody say, there is still room. Because we serve a God of abundance. God doesn't run out of room. There is still room. Verse 23, the master said to the servant, Go to the highways and back alleys and urge people to come in so that my house will be filled. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will taste my dinner. Y'all feel encouraged? There's a thing about Jesus. We love it when Jesus talks about grace. Right? We love it when Jesus talks about forgiveness. Talks about redemption. Talks about loving us. We like that. We like to be loved. We love it when Jesus is for us and promotes the good life. It's kind of how we treat Jesus like a politician. We vote him in because we agree with his agenda and then we just need him to keep the agenda we agree with. But then anytime he strays from the agenda that we agreed with, that we voted him in for, all of a sudden now we're not so pleased. But I prayed for you. I prayed to you. I confessed you. And Jesus talks talking about love of neighbor, and we can deal with that to a point, depending on which neighbor he's talking about. If he says love of enemy, that's a whole different thing. But then Jesus goes on and says something like this. And Jesus reminds us that he's less our politician and more our mountain guide. The one who knows the way down the mountain where the rough terrains are, where the dead-end canyons meet and where the rocks fall and says to us, it's going to be hard, but I need you to trust me. And so Jesus, from time to time, says some hard things. And he always says hard things in the midst of those who hold power, privilege, and position. Because ultimately what this text is showing us is that God's kingdom is not about a kind of power that is about domination, but a kind of power that results in invitation. That God's kingdom is not about scarcity and the fears of not enough, but it's about abundance and generosity. That God's kingdom is not about those who are the powerful, privileged, and positioned few, but is particularly for those Society says, are too ruined, rejected, desolate, deserted, abandoned, unloved, and unworthy. Ultimately, 
what God is telling us in Jesus' story is that the kingdom of God is not about a new way of doing the old way of doing things, but is about a new way altogether. And it's going to challenge every social norm and status quo that we hold up. It may challenge every belief we've ever held. It may even betray those beliefs in some way. It's about an alternative reality that is filled with new possibilities, with new identities, with new understandings of one's own self, with a new way of understanding what it means to be human in this world. It's about a new society that God is forming because of the inbreaking kingdom of Jesus. The invitations have been sent out. And those who place faith in Jesus have said yes to the invitation. And because the banquet awaits those of us who said yes to the invitation, Jesus is trying to help us see that we have to live like we've said yes to the invitation and like we understand the depth of the invitation and the grace of the invitation because we're a people who God is changing to move us from this idea of ownership to stewardship, that all we have is grace, that all we have is gift. And that we've been entrusted with what we have for the good of others who don't and to the praise of God's glory so that they will see that the God of abundance is pursuing them too. And so Jesus tells this story that flips the script on how power and privilege and position works. And you see it in the contrast of the text. Let me ask you something. What did all the original invitees have in common? I bought a farm. I bought five team of oxen. I got married. What did they all have in common? Well, the scripture says excuses. But I think that's kind of reasonable. I bought a farm. I got to check it out. I bought five team of oxen. Got to check them out. Brother just got married. Got to check that out. Right? Like that's the way the scripture works. You know what they all had in common? Money. And you know what money is? Power, privilege, and position. You know what money is in this text and in this context? Power, privilege, and position. And they all had it. And we're left with figuring out why they decided to refuse the invitation. Because the scripture calls it excuses, we might call it common sense. We might even say it's good stewardship. But the scripture calls it excuses. Because maybe they thought that was the thing they had to do. Maybe what had happened to them is what oftentimes happened to us. Is we forget that the power, privilege, and position that we enjoy was not entrusted to us so that we could just simply enjoy it. It was entrusted to us so we can leverage it for the good of others who lack power, privilege, and position. And we don't get to determine who the others are. As a matter of fact, the others are often going to be the people we would rather not be with. Like, you know, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, as Jesus said. The people who will need the most work. The people who will be the most inconvenient. The people who will be the most trouble. The people we least enjoy. And that's the challenge. 
And what ends up happening is we forget what we talked about last week, and we forget what they had forgotten, which was in their own book, their own Bible, Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, where the Lord said, You may say to yourself, My power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm His covenant He swore to your fathers as it is today. God calls privileged people to leverage our access, our influence, our resources to challenge the status quo, to challenge the social norms, to challenge what society says is right or acceptable, to make God's kingdom tangible to all people, especially those who have less power, privilege, and position. All that we have been entrusted with is just grace. There's no ownership in the kingdom. There's only stewardship. Am I wrong? Like that's, that's the way this is supposed to work. God does not entrust this power, privilege, and position for us to use for selfish gain, but for the gain of the kingdom of God, for the gain of other people's well-being. And it would be easy to do what we've done many, many, many times on a Sunday and talk about how, how we as a fallible people are prone to allowing this power, privilege, and position to control us instead of allowing the Spirit to guide us into stewardship of this power, privilege, and position, but we take it as ownership. Some of us even deny we have it because we're afraid of the responsibility to require. Some of us say we've earned it and somehow that makes it our right to keep. And it would be easy to talk about the isms that produce the lopsided power of society, the power dynamics like racism, patriarchy, classism, and others. And it'd be easy to talk about how they are not the kind of power dynamics God approves of and that they're not patterns that Christ followers should conform to. But in less subtle ways, it's how the power, privilege, and position can cause hurt, harm, or stir hatred towards others, especially those people Jesus speaks of in this text, the poor and those who are differently abled. That society then says are disabled. The people that a lack of using what we have for the good of others inadvertently or even purposefully causes harm, hurt, or stirs hatred. And sometimes our lack of doing anything causes the same heart, harm, hurt, and hatred. It's, it's guilt by complicity at that point. It's our silence because we're afraid to lose some friends. Or even some family members. And so we turn a blind eye to what harms, hurts, and stirs hatred toward others. And we walk by as a people given a new name. Say, I've been given a new name. And God, you've been given a new name. We walk by those who are longing for a new name. Society says they're ruined and rejected, unwanted and unloved. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to disrupt our understanding of how the world works. And say, I don't need you just to walk by. I need you to go out to them and invite them in. You see the difference? Invite them in. Now, I've said this for weeks, and I'll say it this last week. Because I've been saying this more for the, largely for the benefit of those among us who, um, who are somewhat new to the WCC family. For years, you know what's made this church have a witness? It's not been the preaching. That's mediocre at best. It's not been the music. It's not been the fancy chairs or the fancy facility. 
You know what it's been? It's been the witness of a church that is willing to go out into the hard places and invite those folks to be a part of the life of the church. Years ago, when I got a call from Sister Agnes' people that her beloved was asked to leave two churches, but she had heard that they would be welcomed here. We welcome them as us. And they have been a part of us ever since. They are a part of our family. I told you a story about how a person who's a part of this church was standing in a circle talking to some guys. They were like, hey, we, uh, we heard you're going to church. They're like, yeah. He's like, what church are you going to? He said, Williamsburg Christian Church. And they said, well, isn't that a church for homeless people? And he said, well, yeah. And for people like you, me. I remember getting a call from a member of this church years ago who was excited that they got into a conversation with a person at the grocery store about Jesus. And they were talking about Jesus, and this person was asked, what church do you go to? And the member of our church family said, well, I go to Williamsburg Christian Church. And they said, Fred, that person's reaction was so weird because they paused. They said, oh, oh, that, that, that church is different. I mean, what do you say? I know, right? But what do you say? Like, can you like, have you met my new, my new, my new partner? Yeah, they, uh, they look kind of uh, different. I mean, that's not always the, the response you're looking for, but it is what it is. And here's the thing. I don't say that as a badge of honor. I say that just as an expression of what God is creating. You know, we don't have bumper stickers. And I'm not riding those congregations that do have bumper stickers. Bumper sticker yourself all you want. You're the bumper sticker. You're the witness. I mean, if we need a bumper sticker or a sign on our car to tell people we're Christians, we got a problem. Matter of fact, I don't need anything on my car because I can get a little angry about lane changes sometimes. <laughs> like, there is a part of why I've avoided ichthuses on my car for a long time. Like, yes, my name is Bob Carlton. That's who my name is. My name is Bob Carlton. Now, I remember years ago, there was a sweet, sweet sister. I'm going to call her Christine, and she was a part of the Luanga community. And this was not too, soon, not too long after they had been here. And a couple of them we had baptized into Christ, and they were becoming a part of our family so fast. And she came in, they came in early, and they, she sat right there, Rodina, she sat right, right there almost in the middle toward the edge. And she was rocking back and forth quickly. And I'd found out that she had just undergone a medication change for what she had been living with in her brain and in her body. And I saw her, and I saw her just sitting by herself. And it was in between services, and I was up here talking to John, my back toward the room, and we were talking about you know, just the gathering and what may need to shift. John had run long as always, and um, we were trying to figure out what, what to change. And I turned around. I turned around, and I saw this beautiful, beautiful family walk in, mom and dad and three children, all dressed in their Sunday best, ready to come to worship God and to celebrate God. And I saw them walk in, and I saw them go around, and I, I saw them go down this aisle, and I saw them sit near Christine. 
And I turned around, and I began to talk to John, and then all of a sudden I heard, Don't sit next to me! Don't sit next to me! As loud and a screech of a scream as it could possibly have been. And I turned around startled, and I saw this family equally startled getting out and walking through and walking through the doors and out. And I thought to myself at that moment, what do I do? And I look at Christine, and she's crying, and she's rocking back and forth more fiercely, and I see that family leaving. I can see them through the window as they're walking down the steps, and I think to myself, who do I run to in this moment? I mean, if I run to this family here, what do I say? Do I say, I'm sorry that that happened? I mean, I am sorry that that happened, but I'm not going to apologize for Christine having a bad day. She was asked to leave two other churches. I have every bit of confidence they're going to find 60-something other to choose from. And so at that moment, I chose Christine. See how she was doing. When she was okay, I ran out after that family. But they were in their car driving away. And as I was running, I still couldn't think about what I would say. I mean, because she's a part of who we are. And again, she was asked to leave two churches. They'll find 60 others to choose from. That is how society works. We know that, right? Sometimes the church is going to have to choose. The question is, will the church choose the ones that Jesus says we must choose? Or will we keep sending our tired old invitations to those who already have the power, privilege, and position because it just helps us grow more power, more privilege, or position? Or will we as a church learn to leverage what power, privilege, and position we have for the good of those who just don't? And every week we gather, we remember our answer. Because we've been given a new name. And everyone made in the image of God is worthy of a new name because God has said so. But we're going to have to go out into the hard places. Do the hard things. Sacrifice much and believe in the God of abundance. Allow ourselves to be wildly discomforted. Resist the urge to find affinity groups and fancy gatherings and call that a church home and push into the calling and the summons of the kingdom to be a part of something far more life-giving than an event once a week. That has been the heart of this church and remains the heart of this church. The question is, will you be a part of the heart of this church? Over the next several weeks, we're going to need all of us. Whatever power, whatever privilege, whatever position, whatever knowledge, whatever resources, whatever access and connections, whatever reach you have and whatever you can find within your grasp, we're going to need to bring that together for the good of those who don't have that access. And it's going to take all of us. And every week we come to the table, we remember while we can. It's all 
grace. And the work of God's grace is to make us more gracious and to live by grace through faith. Walking in the good works that God has prepared for us as Ephesians 2 from last week told us. And to go out into the hard places and make sure no one is alone if they don't want to be alone. And so every week we come, we come to the table. Jason, I'm going to ask you to come. Please, brother, Latanya, come. And we remember the God who didn't wait for us to come, but the God who came for us. The God who in Jesus Christ went out to the highways and the byways and the city streets and the side streets and the back alleyways to take what was called ruined and rejected, abandoned and deserted and give every single one of us a new name. Because you and I are God's chosen what? Beloved. I am a member of God's what? I am a citizen of God's what? I am God's what? Possession. To proclaim what? To proclaim the mighty deeds of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is who we are. And we must live our lives in such a way that people see that and know that that is possible for them too. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.